Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for uh, the message this morning, how powerful that was on relationships. Thank you for your word this evening to us. It is also powerful about uh, how you want us to live life. And so I pray that your spirit would take what is yours and apply it to each of our minds and our hearts as you know we have need. And we pray that you do that, please, tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Kings. Whoops. Oh, yeah. Okay, so have you ever had a day, so this is probably just me, have you ever had a day where um, I tend to, um, I get up early. I'm an early riser. And I, from the moment my feet hit the ground, um, my brain turns on. And so I like to do my quiet time in the morning. So the first thing I do is I go in my office and I turn on my computer because all my stuff is on the computer. A funny thing happens between my good intentions to go straight to my Bible program and the little, there's a little yellow envelope that has a lot of, it has a number by it, sort of. And do you know what I can't do? I can't go to my Bible time until I clear my emails. I know that doesn't happen to you. Uh, some mornings, I'll even find that doing all of my email eats up all the time that I was supposed to spend in my Bible and prayer. I know that's just me. Ever have a day like that? Ever have a week like that? <laughs> you don't have to answer that. But you know from your own personal experience what busyness does to our sense of intimacy and our walk with the Lord. It's not good. It really gets in there and messes. At least it messes with me a lot. Some way, somehow, Solomon in these chapters is working on national-sized projects and yet maintaining an intimate walk with the Lord. I want us to look at that tonight. I think there's some instruction there for us and how we can, in, even in our greatest times of busyness, we can find some help and give us some hope for how we can walk with the Lord even in these times of great, great, great busyness. So I hope you'll be refreshed and uh, invigorated by this study as, as I've been in putting it together for you. So 1 Kings, we're in division, chapter 5 through chapter 9. In 970 B.C. at about the age of 20. Is that crazy? 20. Solomon comes to Israel's throne. By 966, he begins fulfilling God's calling and David's dream, building the temple. For the next seven years, Solomon is in the best place he ever gets in his walk with God. He has a deep level of relationship with God, and there's a real sense of intimate fellowship. Two of them share. In the midst of these gigantic building projects he's doing. It's amazing. Even though he's never been busier, his intimacy with the Lord has never been better. Tonight's lesson comes from a book, but it applies right here. The book you're probably familiar with called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. If that's new to you or unfamiliar to you, I would encourage you to get that book. It's a little thin book. You ought to read it. Uh, really good. 
What Solomon was doing was practicing the presence of God in everything he did. And I'm going to tease that out for you in the next few minutes. Chapter 5 starts off with, you know, your little heading might be a little bit different than mine, but mine says preparations for building the temple. What does David do in chapter 5? He communicates with King Hiram of Tyre. What does he get from King Hiram or up north? Wood. And Hiram is happy that Solomon is going to, um, they have this reciprocal agreement. Solomon has this giant labor force and he does them in shifts. Uh, Verse 17, at the king's command, they quarried large blocks of high-quality stone and shaped them to make the foundation of the temple. Uh, Some of those were very, very large stones. So Solomon in chapter 5 begins to gather the materials. We learn from the companion passage in 1 Chronicles that he also collected 188 tons of gold. Perspective. Let's pretend a car weighs 2,000 pounds. So we're going to call that a ton. 188 cars will fit in front of the parking lots of the sanctuary. So imagine all the cars that are out in front of the sanctuary are each one ton, 188 cars, gold. That's a lot of gold. (laughs) 375 tons of silver. The parking garage holds about 350 cars. Imagine there are 350 cars, each one a ton of silver. That parking lot is filled with gold. That parking structure is filled with silver to make this temple. Unbelievable, immeasurable tons of wood, stone, and bronze. Point of these materials is Solomon uses only the very best materials. The workers are resident aliens as well as Israelites, who he made the foreman over the the workers. So he gathers the material and he gathers together the workers. He assigns them to the roles. In chapter 6, he begins building the temple. This verse will be on the final. 1 Kings 6.1. Do you see it? It was in mid-spring in the month of Ziv, during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. When did Solomon's reign begin? Remember, we just had on the slide before. You can flip back or look, look up. 970, what would the fourth year of Solomon's reign be? 966, that he began to construct the temple of the Lord. This was... 480 years after the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in the land of Egypt. For those of you who can do quick math, 966 plus 480 is 1446 B.C. I don't care what the History Channel says. It was 1446 B.C. was the year of the Exodus. It's right here. It's in plain sight. 1446 B.C. was their redemption out of Egypt. And now in 966, Solomon begins to build the temple. He's going to build it 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. For those of you who did a little quick math from Exodus, you remember that the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the tent was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. This is double. This is twice as big as the tabernacle. 
Now, 90 feet by 30 feet is not very long and not very wide. So there's a lot of gold and silver going into this rascal. <laughs> 90 feet by 30 feet, 45 feet high. And it gives you a few other little dimensions there, and it tells you about there's some complexes of rooms where they're going to store some things. Uh, it tells you about the stones that were finished in the quarry, so there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other iron tool at the building site. Everyone wants to know, why, why? I don't know. <laughs> Evidently, Solomon thought that it was inappropriate for that kind of noise to be around the temple and because of the use of the temple. But if you'd like to research that and write a paper, I'd love to read it. He talks about the, uh, the entrance to the bottom floor. Uh, and then God shows up in verse 11. Then the Lord gave this message to Solomon. Concerning this temple you are building, if you keep all my decrees and regulations and obey all my commands, I will fulfill through you the promise I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and will never abandon my people Israel. And when was the last time God showed up to Solomon? Remember to confirm. Remember he had asked for wisdom. That was the first time God showed up. And then Solomon did some things, and then God showed up and said, good boy, keep going. Now he shows up here again. He's busy. He's in the midst of these giant building projects that took ultimately 20 years, 20 years to build the temple and his palace. At least his palace, probably complex, but the Lord shows up to encourage him again. So Solomon finished building the temple. The entire inside from floor to ceiling was paneled with wood. And then uh, he's going to go ahead and cover that with gold. And it tells you about the size of it. Um, Laurie, I think, gave you a picture. Uh, it's an artist's rendition. I don't, I don't know that the angel, the angel figurines in the Holy of Holies actually were animals like that. I don't know. I don't think so, but what do I know? But that's a great, a great little picture she gave you. He overlaid the inside with solid gold. He had enough. He, he covered that thing with solid gold. Uh, let's see, he makes two cherubim of olive wood, each 15 feet tall, and placed them in the inner sanctuary, which is the Holy of Holies. The wingspan of each of the cherubim was 15 feet. Okay, so 15 and 15 is 30. This thing is how wide? 30 feet. The two cherubim were identical in shape and size. Each was 15 feet tall. He placed them side by side in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Their outspread wings reached from wall to wall, while their inner wings touched at the center of the room, or right over the Ark of the Covenant. And he overlaid those two cherubim with gold. He decorates all the rooms. He makes double doors. He makes other kinds of doors, and he decorates it lavishly. The foundation, verse 37, the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid in mid-spring in the month of Ziv during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. The entire building was completed in every detail by mid-autumn in the month of Bul during the 11th year. So it took seven years to build the temple. Solomon builds a palace for himself. It took 13 years. One of the reasons it took 13 years was because it was much larger than the temple. And so we see all the things he's doing. He's got a, uh, the palace of the forest of Lebanon, and then he's got the hall of pillars, and then he's got the hall of justice where his throne room was. Um, and he talks about in verse 9 through 12, giant blocks, some 15 feet long, some 12 feet long were were used for building this thing. He goes on in chapter 7, he talks about all the, the bronze work that was done by Huram. And it, it must have been fabulous to see these things, all, all the stuff that he made. Um, he goes on and he makes 
water basins and decorations and um, there's a list at the end of chapter 7 of all these things that he makes. So the end of chapter 7, so King Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. So in 6 and 7, he's building the temple itself. It's twice the size of the tabernacle, otherwise it's identical in proportion. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was 15, 15, 15. In the temple, it's 30, 30, 30. Interesting. Wonder why each of the three directions is the same. I don't know. I just wonder. Don't you wonder? Why was it the same? A lot of people think it's because it's a reflection of the Trinity. It's same in every direction. 30 feet for the Father, 30 feet for the Son, 30 feet for the Spirit. Maybe so. The furnishings, everything is larger, and there's more of certain things. Um, in Chronicles, there's probably ten tables for the bread instead of just one. There's definitely ten lampstands instead of one. There are ten water carts. Not quite sure why ten, but there's ten. And things inside the temple, one, they could be, and because no one had to carry them, right, the tabernacle was mobile. This is not mobile. And so things can be a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier, and there's more of them. But interestingly enough, he follows the blueprint of the Word of God. So he's not doing anything that he's not been instructed to do. So he builds the temple in 6 through 7. Interesting. You know, what does he name the big pillars in front? Do you remember? This will be on the, this will be on the final two. Okay? One means, what does the first one mean? Jacinth or Hasinth. What does that one mean? It means establishes, uh, secure, secure and established. Okay, what does Boaz mean? Strong. Strong and securely established. The tabernacle is mobile. The temple is big and immovable. And I am establishing it securely with my strength in your country. So the Lord is communicating to them, I'm establishing you securely and strongly in this country. That's the point of the temple. I mean, the point of the temple is to worship God, but he's telling, giving them a message with the temple about how strong and securely established they are in this place. Conditioned on only one thing, obedience. So Solomon follows the blueprint of the Word of God. Then chapter 8, wonderful chapter. If you didn't have a chance to read it, you really need to read it. It's, uh, it's an amazing chapter. Uh, Solomon summons to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes. And they're to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David. And so they do that and they bring the ark in, and they bring it in the right way. They don't put it on a cart this time. They actually, the priests carry it. So good lesson learned there. They move it into the sanctuary, and we're told that now uh, the only thing in it are the two, the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it. What's missing? The jar of manna and the budded rod. Huh? Where'd they go? I don't know. But if you'd like to write a paper on that, I'd love to read it. Uh, maybe the Philistines took it. I don't know. Remember when they took the ark? Maybe they looked inside. Maybe they took some stuff. Ah, mm. But all, we're told now all that's left 
is the stone tablets. Now, is it possible, and the answer is going to be yes, could they have been in front of it? So now all that's in it is the tablets, but the budded rod and the jar of manna are in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Sure, that's possible. Why is that important? We already did it in Hebrews, so if you don't remember that, oh, sorry. When the priests come out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests couldn't continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon prayed, and he, he has this wonderful prayer. Uh, let's see. And he starts, we kind of are introduced to the prayer in verse 12, and then we hear his prayer of dedication in verse 22. And he, he has this wonderful, wonderful prayer. Um, he begins with praise. Um, he asks, beginning in verse 25, um, that, um, that God would uh, continue to be a promise-keeping God. Uh, 27, kind of 27 um, through the end, he's really praying that God will hear the people's prayers. What happens when the people sin against God? What happens when the people sin here? What happens when there's, they've sinned and so there's famine? What happens when they sin and so there's drought? There's no rain. What happens, what happens, what happens? Lord, please hear your people when they confess and repent and turn to you. Will you hear from heaven and will you act? Interesting. He says, um, let's see, where is that? In 44, if your people go out where you send them to fight their enemies, and if they pray to the Lord by turning toward this city you have chosen and toward this temple I have built to honor your name, then hear their prayers from heaven and uphold their cause. Two prophets prayed toward this temple. Daniel is the second. Jonah is the first. Jonah looked toward the temple and prayed. Daniel looked toward the temple and prayed. So this was a thing. All because of Solomon. Solomon says, when your people look toward this structure, the one that represents your throne on earth, hear from heaven and take up their cause on their behalf. So he has this wonderful prayer uh, let's see. Yeah, and that's how he, he wraps it up all the way through 53 is he's, he's asking the Lord to forgive. Uh, 52, may your eyes be open to my requests and to the requests of your people Israel. May you hear and answer them whenever they cry out to you. For when you bought, brought our ancestors out of Egypt, O sovereign Lord, you told your servant Moses that you would set Israel apart from all the nations of the earth to be your own special possession. So in 50 through 53, he has this marvelous prayer. God's presence enters the temple in 10 through 11. Solomon prays that God would keep his eyes on the temple and keep his ears attentive to his people's prayers and that God would answer them as they pray toward that temple and toward God who is in it, recognizing that God would reward the obedient with blessing and discipline the disobedient, all in accordance with his covenant from Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. So he dedicates the temple. Then in 54, when Solomon finished making these prayers and petitions to the Lord, he stood up in front of the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands raised toward heaven. He stood and in a loud voice blessed the entire congregation of Israel. And so then he spends a few verses dedicating the people. So he's dedicated the, the uh, temple. Now he's going to dedicate the people to God. So they have his a summary of these verses. They have a God whose promises have never failed. Solomon asks that they would have 
hearing hearts. Remember he said, let me have a hearing heart when he first talked to God? Remember that? He prays for them to have a hearing heart toward God and follow and obey the Lord. How does God answer with fire as he did with Moses 480 years earlier? 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3 has great description of that. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. What a great dedication of the temple and a great dedication of the people. What would you do if you would have seen this? Probably what they did, they celebrated. So they celebrate. So now Solomon brings out the sacrifices. The king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices to the Lord. 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. That's a lot. That same day, the king consecrated the central area of the courtyard. He offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of peace offerings there because the bronze altar in the Lord's presence was too small to hold all the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. Solomon and all Israel celebrated the festival of shelters or tabernacles in the presence of the Lord our God. Um, a large congregation has assembled. This thing goes on for 14 days. Seven days for the dedication of the altar and seven days for the festival of shelters. After the festival was over, Solomon sent the people home. They blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad because the Lord had been good to his servant David and to his people Israel. These people celebrate. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorates or celebrates the Lord's care for them in the wilderness wanderings. So they felt a little bit, I guess, like they had been wandering in the wilderness, and now they have a temple, and there's God in it. So they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They celebrate with peace offerings. Remember, a peace offering, part is dedicated to God and the priests, part is retained for the one making the offering. You are having a fellowship meal with God. He gets part, right? He gets served first, and then you get your part, and you sit down there together, and you have a meal. Huh. Sound like anything we do today? A little bit. Communion. What are we doing? Having a meal with God. Who's at the heart of the, or let me say it this way, what's at the heart of this, um, of the peace offerings? What's at the heart of it? The peace offering, right? What's at the heart of communion? The peace offering. Who is Jesus? Uh, okay. The peace offering. He is our peace from Ephesians. He is our peace. He is the peace offering. We not only feed on him, but he is our peace. And he is the peace offering on which we are feeding because of what he did for us has brought peace between God and man. Whoa! Okay. Gosh, that's great stuff. If you don't like that... Mm. Here's the point of, of all these things. The Lord is appropriately at the center of his nations and his people's hearts. The Lord is at the center of Solomon's heart, and the Lord is at the center of his people's hearts right now. 
God's going to have one more thing to say to Solomon here. So Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had done before at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy. This place you have built where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. Is that amazing? What does God say right there? This thing you've done is dear to my heart. As for you, if you will follow me with integrity and godliness, as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations... Then I will establish the throne of your dynasty over Israel forever. For I made this promise to your father David. One of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the commands and decrees I have given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot Israel from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. I will make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads in amazement. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be, Because his people abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and they worshipped other gods instead and bowed down to them. That is why the Lord has brought all these disasters on them. So God shows up one last time to speak with Solomon about the temple, and he says to him, I will continue to be with you. That's his promise. You, Solomon, dedicate yourself to me. Walk in my presence every day. Solomon, obedience matters. But remember, what will happen if you don't? And so God gives him a warning. So he makes him a promise. And he says, here's what I expect of you. And here's what will happen if you don't. God lays it out there for him very plainly. And very clearly. Four summary observations of this great passage. Let's connect some dots. This seven year stretch is the best it ever gets for Solomon's relationship with the Lord. He's probably written Song of Solomon. He's likely pulled together, if it isn't in its final form, he's likely pulled together a whole bunch of Proverbs. The only book he's got left to go is Ecclesiastes, which we'll do next week. That's him as an older man looking back on his life. This is the best it ever gets. Chapter 11 is the the pivot. Chapter 11 is where we start falling off the cliff. This is the best it ever gets with Solomon and his walk with God. He's fully aware that he's doing God's work. He's mindful of God's worth and so gives only the best for God's name and God's work. From his prayers, if you have an opportunity to read chapter 8 particularly... He's steeped himself in God's word, especially Deuteronomy. Remember, the king, when he came to power, was supposed to copy Deuteronomy with his own hand and read it every day. Remember that? No? So that was back in Deuteronomy. He was <laughs> said, you're going to ask for kings, and I'm going to give you some kings, and every king better make a copy of this and read it every day. So... Solomon seems to be doing that. And lastly, God's presence, power, and promise-keeping are the axis of his worship. Everything goes around for Solomon. Everything revolves around this axis 
for him, his prayer and his praise. God's presence, power, and promise-keeping. Everything goes around that um, pole. (laughs) Twirls around there. Four great points for these chapters about how to handle busyness and yet have an intimate walk with the Lord. So let's make some application. Practicing the presence of God. Uh, Again, read the book if you haven't. It's worth a read. Um, One of the greatest intimacy killers, and it goes with busyness, is compartmentalization. You know what I mean? No? You put God in this compartment over here, and you give him his hour in the morning, and then the rest of the day is mine, and I don't think about God, and then maybe at Lunch, I might remember to pray for my meal. So I kind of think about God for, you know, 10 seconds. And then I do the afternoon. And then maybe dinner, I remember to pray again. And then the evening, you know, I do whatever I do. And then, whew, man, I, my head hits the pillow and I'm gone. What have I done with the Lord? I'm not practicing the presence of God. I've compartmentalized my walk with him. And when I get busy, the compartmentalization comes faster and easier, and his compartment gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and sometimes in some days can get completely squeezed out. Ever had a day like that? Practicing the presence of God. Solomon, it seems, had learned to integrate the whole of his life into one continual conscious awareness of living in the presence of God. No quiet times, no church times, no small group times, only one time, only one compartment for Solomon And all of that life was to be lived out in God's presence. Maybe that's different than how you're living your life right now. Maybe that's different than how I'm living my life right now. It's easier to think in compartments. What if there were no more compartments in your life? And all of life was lived in the continual conscious awareness of the presence of God. What if? Would that change your life? I think it will. Let's walk through these daily practices. I didn't say this would be easy. Practicing the presence of God. No more compartments. First, your work. Whatever your work is, whatever you would count your work as, is what I mean here. Every day, Solomon was mindful that he was engaged in God's work. What did God give Solomon to do? Build the temple, right? Well, that was pretty easy. Solomon knew what he was supposed to do. Wish I knew what I was supposed to do, right? I I can read some of your minds right now. Wish I had had that written down. I'd love that, then I'd know. Who among you knows Ephesians 2.10? We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for us, that we might walk in them. What? 
Is God present in your life every moment of every day? Whether you, whether you are conscious, consciously aware of that or not, is, is that a true statement? Okay. Has God given you and me some things to do? Prepared before the foundations of the world for us to do? Yes. Maybe it's not building a temple. But whatever you're doing that day is your work from God. Do you get up and say, today, this day, the work that I am given to do, this is God's work, and I am going to do it consciously aware of the fact that this is his work I'm doing today. I don't care what that work is. I'm doing God's work today. You ever thought about that? Wherever you're driving, I don't know, some of you maybe you're driving kids to whatever, school or what's the sport going on right now? Baseball, I guess, maybe? Driving your kids there? And you go, that's your work. Dads, you're doing other things. You're meeting people. You know, I don't know what all you're doing. But whatever you're doing that day, that is your work from God. Solomon was mindful that he was engaged in God's work. What do I mean by mindful? Solomon seemed to have a conscious awareness that he was doing what he was doing for God. What happens when I start to compartmentalize things? This part of my life is for God. And this part of my life, it kind of lived under God, right? I, I, yeah, but this, I'm doing it. What if there's no more compartments? What if everything you do during a day is your work that day from God? What if? Would it change how you view your day? Solomon seems to be mindful that he was engaged in God's work. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we were redeemed to serve God. We need to be sensitive and responsive to the Spirit's leading. Some of you say, well, I don't know if I'm doing God's work or not. I just want you to make an assumption. When you get up tomorrow morning, Whatever is in your day, whatever you encounter, is God's work for you for Monday. It's going to change your life. Some of you say, well, I, I just don't know. You know, I don't know that I've ever heard from God, and I don't know. Remember, the Spirit can be grieved. There are times when we do things that he doesn't want us to do, and that grieves him. Now, that's going to be sin. So don't say, well, maybe I've done that. Maybe that's why you don't hear from God. No, let, I'm going to assume you're not walking in habitual rebellion against God tomorrow. Another assumption I'm going to make. You genuinely want to know what God has for you. What if he says, whatever I put in front of you tomorrow is what I have for you? And what if Bill it wouldn't make any sense to you now, but tomorrow you're going to take a step in the best direction for your life under my sovereign planning. But that won't become clear to you for another 10 or 15 years. What if? How about, not what if, but because? <laughs> Would that change your life? The Spirit can be grieved by sin, by not communicating with the Lord. He's like, look, I'm talking, you're not listening. Oh, right, sorry, I want to listen. The Spirit can be quenched. These things are real things. If you are concerned that that might be true of you, talk to God about that. I can't do anything about it. It's not my Spirit. It's God's spirit. Talk to him. Say, gosh, Dad, I think I might have done this. I, I confess it. 
I don't want that to be true of me. What's your heavenly father going to do? We've talked about this before. Does he stand here and go, nice try, Bill. Don't believe you. Let me see it. Put it in action for about two weeks, then I'll believe you. That's what, that's what we think. What does this heavenly father do? Bill, I love that. Come on. Let's get going. I got some great things planned for you today. But don't ask me about the future. I'm going to hold that to myself. I'm not going to share the future with you. Just need you to be with me today. Be present today. Is that hard? To be present today? <laughs> we were redeemed to serve God. We need to be sensitive and responsive to His Spirit's leading. We need to remind ourselves each day that we're engaged in God's work. What is God more concerned with in these chapters? You heard me as I read it, but I went real fast, and I didn't connect any dots along the way for you. What is Solomon more concerned with, kind of, right now? Building the temple. What is God more concerned with right now? Solomon, I want your heart, and I want you to obey me. This thing over here, okay? Solomon, great, love it. It's, it's near and dear to my heart. Solomon, let's talk about how you're going to walk with me. We always get caught up in, in do, what I have to do for God. I have to build something. I have to make some great contribution. What if your great contribution is in your relationship with the Lord and with people? As I understand it, there's only two things that last. One is the Word of God. Second is people. Sometimes we're caught up in the wrong things. What can I do for God? And he says, uh, just be with me. Be with me. That's more important to me anyway. Be with me and I'll lead you. Just be. We get caught up in being human doings instead of human beings. We need to remind ourselves each day that we are engaged in God's work. Practice number two. Every day Solomon was mindful of God's worth and so gave only his best for his name and his work. The New Testament, God through Paul, tells us that we can build with wood, hay, or stubble, or with gold, silver, and jewels. In light, of giving God's, in light of God giving his best for us in Jesus Christ, doesn't he deserve our best today in time, talent, and treasure? We need to remind ourselves each day that God deserves our best today. Not tomorrow, today with all of the stuff that's heaped on you any given day, guess who knows what's heaped on you every day? Does God know this? Say it louder. Yes, he does. Is he going, oh my gosh, Bill, I'm so surprised. I'm so sorry. I turned my back only for a minute and whoosh. No. God knows exactly what each day is like for you. And he knows how you can respond to him in faith and trust and allegiance that day. We need to remind ourselves each day that God deserves our best today. Daily practice number three has to do with the word of God. Solomon's work and especially his prayers, revealed a deep knowledge of God and his word. Here's just logic. We can't be mindful or consciously aware of what or who we don't know. The word of God is our spiritual food. 
The sermon notes, as one example, are a great resource. What lasts is the size and quality of our relationship with the Lord, not the size and quality of what we build for his name. What lasts is the size and quality of our relationship with the Lord, not the size and quality of what we build in his name. We need to be swimming, immersed in God's word each day. Now you might think, oh my gosh, what's he asking me to do? Read Isaiah every day? No. You might choose to pick a proverb, one proverb, but immerse yourself in it. Just be immersed in the word of God. You want something real convicting? No, you don't. So I'm not going to tell you. All right, I will. <laughs> Try to just get a handle on how much, how many hours you spend on screen time and compare that to word time. How much time are you on your phone looking at stuff? I'm going to look at the sports scores. You know what? I know they didn't change since five minutes ago, but I'm so bored, I'm just going to check them again. You know what? I bet some news has happened in the past five minutes. I don't know about I think I'll check that again, even though I just checked it five minutes ago. How many hours are consumed on screen time? I would suggest some. How does that compare with your time in the Word? Sorry, too convicting. Swim, get immersed in God's Word in some form or fashion every day. And then finally is worship. God's presence, power, and promise-keeping were the axis of Solomon's worship. So walk each day in grace, no longer looking toward a temple, but toward Jesus Christ. Turn to him first in prayer. Offer praise for who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing. Hebrews 13.5 talks about the sacrifices of God. One of them is offering a continual sacrifice of praise. A continual sacrifice of praise for what God is doing. We need to have our lives revolve each day around praise of and prayer to God, which are the hallmarks of worship. Does it amaze you that God wants to hear your prayers? this amaze you? Read the Psalms. He bends down. He stoops down to listen to us when we talk to him in prayer. <coughs> Amazing. Drawing close in busy times. Each day walk in conscious awareness that you're engaged in and ready, willing, and available to do God's work. His work may be simply a relationship that day. His work for you that day, tomorrow, may be that to be an encourager in somebody's life in the midst of a time when you could use some encouragement. But you're going to look to others and you're going to try to encourage them. Maybe it's just listening to somebody when you wish someone would listen to you. You're just going to put them first. And you're going to be, in a sense, God to them. In the same way that God encourages us, we would encourage others. Tomorrow, be engaged in, ready, willing, and available to do God's work. Each day, offer God your best because he's worth it. Determine to offer him no leftovers. Don't be like me. Oh, I miss my quiet time in the morning. Okay, I'll pick it up at night. Okay. I'm laying in bed. Right? I don't get any more. Dear Lord, I'm gone. Or I'll start praying, and the next thing I know is I wake up, and I go, oh, huh, I wonder how far I got. <laughs> Probably not very far. Each day offer God your best because he's worth it. Determined to offer him no leftovers. 
Each day saturate yourself in God's Word. And each day keep God as the axis of your life and activities through an ongoing conversation of praise and prayer, which is the substance and essence of worship. Work, worth, word, worship. Four W's, write them down. Work, worth, word, worship. Words written in red. Let me give you quickly... Uh, from Practicing the Presence of God uh, was written by Brother Lawrence. He was born Nicholas Herman in 1611. Nicholas entered the priory as a lay brother, not having the education necessary to become a priest. He spent the rest of his life within the walls of this large monastic community working in the kitchen for most of his life and later as a cobbler. While assigned to the kitchen, working at the tedious tasks of cooking and cleaning, he developed the practice of living always in conscious awareness of God. He died in relative obscurity in 1691 at the age of 80. For 330 years, this man who died in obscurity, we have been reading his book. Can you imagine he's 80 and he thinks, what did I ever do for God? For 330 years, we've been blessed by what he wrote. You never know what God is doing with you and through you in others' lives. You never know. Here are some good thoughts that I got from him. To arrive at union with God, all one needs is a heart resolutely determined to apply itself to nothing but him. Do nothing but for his sake and to love him only. We just need to recognize God as intimately present with us and address ourselves to him every moment. There's the key. Part of this communion with God is praising, adoring, and loving Him incessantly for His infinite goodness and perfection. When He had prayerfully filled His mind with an attitude of great devotion of that infinite being, He went to His work in the monastery kitchen as a cook. As He's washing the dishes... He's praising God for his beauty, his perfection, his goodness. If he could do that in the kitchen in the 1600s, can we do that now in whatever we're doing? Last couple of thoughts. We are to keep the soul's gaze fixed on God in faith, calmly, humbly, and lovingly, without allowing the appearance of anxious thoughts and emotions. Make it your practice before beginning any task to look to God, even if it's just for a moment. Let me suggest some simple words that those who begin this practice can use privately. Use prayers such as, My God, I am wholly yours. O God of love, I love you with all my heart. Lord, make my heart even as yours. And then he says, use other similar words as you feel moved. Can you practice the presence of God? It's not going to happen tomorrow. This has to become a new practice for you, one you're going to have to work at. We're all working at it but it'll change our lives because God is intimately familiar and intimately present with us at every moment. All we have to do is resolutely fix our mind. He is right here. And I want to speak with his wisdom. I want to work with his energy. And I want to do this because he's right here with me. Great thoughts. Practicing the presence of God. Solomon had it down in this section of Scripture. For next week, read Ecclesiastes. 
If you've been with us before, you'll hear again, I don't think Ecclesiastes is a downer of a book. Oh, hopefully that's intriguing to you. Come next week and I'll try to explain that, how I see it. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you more than that for your presence. Uh, It is amazing to us that you would want to be present with us, that you would want to hear our prayers, that you would want us to look to you and to be guided by you and to be completely dependent on you and to adore you uh, for even the smallest things, uh, bodies that are um, healthy enough to come to a, a place of worship, eyes that allow us to see as we drive, reflexes that are good enough uh, so that we can um, do amazing things, coordination uh, in our bodies. All of these things are done by you and blessings for us that you give us and I know I uh, neglect or ignore to uh, marvel at even those things. Um, I just take them for granted. So help us all to practice your presence uh, more regularly. I pray it would become a greater, more in-depth, more formative habit for each one of us. We pray that according to your Spirit's power working in us. In Jesus' name, amen.